All right, with that, it is my pleasure to introduce Allison Fahey. Allison is a senior policy manager at JPAL, where she manages JPAL's finance and political economy and governance sectors. In this role, she conducts outreach with foundations, governments, NGOs, and other organizations to disseminate evidence from JPAL evaluations and also helps organizations integrate evidence into the policy design process. She leads policy dissemination efforts in the Middle East and North Africa. And prior to joining JPAL, she worked in a variety of positions relating to service delivery, economic growth, and decentralization in several countries. She was the monitoring and evaluation advisor on a USAID project focusing on service delivery improvement with municipalities of Western Afghanistan and did similar work with the Ministry of Finance in Jordan on a fiscal reform project. At the World Bank in Indonesia, she researched social accountability mechanisms to improve school performance. She was a Fulbright Scholar in Jordan, and she has an MPA in International Development from the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University, as well as a BA in International Studies from Boston College. Please give a warm after-lunch welcome to Alison Fahey. Great. Thank you very much, and it's wonderful to see you all here, and thanks uh, for joining me for the immediate after-lunch slot. Okay, well, thanks very much. So good afternoon, and thank you so much for welcoming me here to the Effective Altruism Global Gathering. I am pleased to be here this afternoon to talk with you all about universal basic income. The debate surrounding this policy kind of option and idea, which I imagine is what's motivated so many of you to be here today, what evidence from randomized control trials or RCTs has to say to help inform that debate? And what questions remain unanswered and in need of further research before we'll really be able to make a decision about the impact of this sort of an approach? Now, if you've kept up on development-related news over the last few months or year, or even just the general press, you've likely read about universal basic income. So just to make sure we're all on the same page, I'll quickly review what exactly it is. So as the name implies, universal basic income is a cash transfer that is universal in nature, meaning all adults, all people in a given area, regardless of any targeting or means testing, receive this cash transfer. There are no conditions placed on how the money is spent, no targeting or any other ways of identifying who is eligible. The transfers themselves are regular and long-term, so they, they imitate income in that way. And they're of a sufficient size to meet basic needs wherever, uh, you know, wherever the program's actually being rolled out. Now, there are several reasons today that motivate kind of the, the policy focus on universal basic income. On the one hand, in places like the UK and in many other places around the world, the rate of technological change and automation is taking place rapidly, leading to complete transformations to what the labor market looks like. And this is particularly acute in certain industries. So think about manufacturing, agriculture, food, et cetera. These are industries where there stands to be significant labor displacement from uh, advancing automation and technological development. And so, for folks who are concerned with those potential issues, universal basic income is a really interesting and potentially promising solution to help deal with individuals who've been displaced uh, out, of, out of work. On the other hand, though around the world there's been incredible progress made over the last few decades in reducing extreme poverty, today still over 700 million people 
continue living in extreme poverty, living on less than $1.90 per day. And in particular, in the low and middle income countries where the majority of the world's extreme poor are concentrated, universal basic income has maybe a certain draw and appeal as a way to help address this seemingly intractable problem of actually eradicating extreme poverty. And in high and low income countries alike, there's a shared sense that the kind of status quo of the social safety net is complex, is inefficient, and is really ineffective and needs to be rethought. So all three of these different kind of threads come together and settle on universal basic income as possibly an interesting solution to each of those different dilemmas. But like any potentially you know, disruptive and exciting new approach, there's certainly considerable debate around the impact of universal basic income and whether it is or is not a good idea. So its supporters argue on the left-hand side here, the case for UBI is that it would be more efficient than the status quo. It would streamline the delivery of what is otherwise a very piecemeal social safety net that entails high costs to both target benefits or to follow up and enforce on conditionality that's incorporated into programs. The basic income by being redistributed, uh, redistributive, excuse me, could actually re uh, reduce poverty in and of itself. There are other benefits that, that supporters uh, kind of put forth, including the fact that the unconditional nature of these transfers from a rights-based perspective is simply preferable because it gives flexibility and autonomy back to the recipient and that it can recognize unpaid labor, which around the world is disproportionately done by women. Finally, new technological advances, think things like mobile money uh, and e-banking and things like that, help to facilitate the expansion of something like universal basic income from an infrastructure perspective, when you think about how these cash transfers would actually be delivered. But on the flip side, detractors argue that UBI would simply be too costly as to be, you know, simply be too costly and making it infeasible, impossible. One potential strategy for paying for UBI is to take cost savings from cutting different social programs and to put those into a budget to support the transfers. But detractors argue that it might just be politically infeasible to actually eliminate uh, many of these other social programs that are very entrenched in order to finance uh, these large cash transfers. Some detractors also raise concerns about how the cash will be spent. And in particular, there's kind of a thread here around concerns that the poor, in particular, would not use cash well. And that's like a normative idea, but that there's good and bad ways to spend money and that it could be wasted. Um, and then two others, giving cash simply just doesn't feel right. So I know this most kind of directly from the context in the U.S. where there's this sense that, you know, American philosophy and work ethic is simply at odds with the idea of simply giving out a transfer. And then there's practical questions. Payments infrastructure and the ability to actually move money around might really not be possible in all places. So... There are some valid points on both sides of this debate. And so how should we as a community of effective altruists and development practitioners actually think about where we put our weight in this debate? Are we for it? Are we against it? Maybe we don't know yet, which is kind of, uh, you know, to preview, I would say that might be where we are. And what more do we need to know before we can make a really uh, kind of clear decision? So this is precisely why my organization, JPAL, or the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab, was founded, to 
conduct rigorous research in order to answer questions that help to inform these like intractable debates in, in policy with evidence. So JPAL was founded as a research center at MIT back in 2003, um, and we conduct randomized control trials through our network of about 150 affiliated professors. So they conduct our evaluations, which are at the center of what we do. And these are randomized control trials, or RCTs, that help to answer questions about the impact of different development programs and policies, like UBI. We also have a group that works on capacity building, strengthening policymakers around the world's ability to both consume evidence and to generate their own, and then a policy outreach group that shares the results of completed studies. As a network, our uh, 150 or so affiliated professors have today conducted nearly 900 of these impact evaluations around the world. Um, so there's quite a lot of evidence that exists on the effectiveness of different social programs and policies. So now, if we recall the debate that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, let's examine some of this research, some of, some of the results from some of these, you know, almost 900 studies, to understand where evidence already exists that can help to resolve some of the aspects of this debate. So first, Let's take the concerns that re, uh, the receipt of cash without conditions placed upon how it is spent might lead people to reduce how much they work. It might lead people to say, great, I'm going to quit my job and I'm just going to relax kind of for life. And there's evidence that on average that is not the case. So a group of JPAL affiliated professors reviewed seven randomized control trials of conditional and unconditional cash transfers from six countries, quite literally around the globe. And they found no evidence that the receipt of cash either discourages people from working or reduces the total number of hours that people do work for either men or for women. Second, there are concerns that cash given with little or no strings attached might be squandered, that you might see some situation like this guy with his cigar and champagne. And again, in fact, it seems that that's not true when people receive cash transfers. So uh, J-PAL affiliates worked together with the nonprofit Give Directly, who I imagine many of you are familiar with, to test the impact of a lump sum cash transfer program in Kenya, which gave recipients anywhere from 400 to 1500 US dollars in a single lump sum transfer. And what they found was that for these households that received these cash transfers, their economic and non-economic kind of measures of well-being improved about four months after the transfers were given. And they also found no significant increases in temptation spending, so in spending money on things like cigarettes, alcohol, etc. Similarly, in Uganda, researchers tested the impacts of a large unconditional cash transfer that was delivered to groups of young people who kind of gathered together with business ideas. And here they found that by providing young people with an unconditional grant of about uh, $400 per individual, led to several kind of positive outcomes on the business side. So these individuals who received the transfers increased business investment and four years later had higher levels of income and spent more time working than those in a comparison group, suggesting that there's kind of some sticking power with some of these results. So this is not to say that all people make perfect choices with cash all of the time, but that on average there seems to be not a lot of evidence to support some of the concerns around use of cash that were raised in, in the sort of debate that I laid out earlier. 
So there is much that we already do know to suggest that giving cash unconditionally might make sense, but simply giving cash unconditionally is quite different in, you know, in magnitude than universal basic income. So there's still quite a lot that we don't yet know. So what we don't know is what happens when the cash transfers continue over a much longer period of time, are larger in magnitude, and what happens when they cover an entire community. And so in order to answer these questions, a group of JPAL affiliated researchers are working together with this nonprofit Give Directly to test the impact of universal basic income given over a long period of time to whole communities. And this is the first impact evaluation of its kind anywhere around the world. So Give Directly has randomized villages, entire villages in Kenya, into a total of four groups. And you can see those listed here as T1, T2, and T3. So the first group, T1, is receiving basic income in the amount of about 22 US dollars per month, delivered to every adult in those villages on a monthly basis over 12 years. So it's quite a long period of time relative to many other studies. The second group, T2, is receiving a transfer of the same amount, also monthly, but over only two years. And so by looking at the relative impacts of these two transfer programs, this will allow researchers to answer the question of what the additional impact of the long-term guarantee is. Does that actually change how people think about investment, about taking risk and things like that, because they know the transfer will continue over a long period of time? The third group, T3 here, will receive two years worth of monthly transfers, but in a single large lump sum. And so by comparing the relative impacts of the second group to the third, it will allow researchers to understand the difference between smaller and more frequent transfers versus a large lump sum. How does that change investment decisions and spending decisions, et cetera? So researchers will be looking at the impact of basic income on a wide range of outcomes, and these will really help to answer many of the outstanding questions in the debate that I laid out earlier. So they'll be looking at economic status. So how does household income, assets, et cetera, change over time? They'll also be looking at how people spend their time, and this will answer this critical question around whether, with kind of a, a long-term assurance of income, people do or do not reduce or, or increase their labor supply, whether they spend more or less time working or, or in leisure. They'll also look at how people take risks, how they make investments, and whether that changes with the long-term uh, income guarantee. They'll look at how the UBI shifts gender dynamics in the household, and they'll look at a wide range of health and other non-economic outcomes to see what happens to you know, health, mental health, uh, levels of stress, et cetera. And then finally, and I think this is something that's quite unique about this study, because they're randomizing at the village level, this will also allow them to understand what village level effects of these transfers are. So it will allow us to ask and answer questions about what happens to wages, to prices, to inflation when this transfer is given to all adults in uh, entire villages all at once. Now we're 
barely a year, I think, into this total study. So it's going to be a while before I can come back to, you know, effective altruism in a decade and tell you about the long-term results. But researchers are already working on, um, and they'll be able to answer some of those questions uh, within the first couple of years, given the, the second and third treatment arms that I laid out before. But for now, just looking at how people have been using transfers, um, they already see some evidence that people are um, spending more, spending their transfers on increasing uh, their food consumption, devoting transfers to school fees, and making investments in small businesses and homes. So some suggestion that the, fund, uh, that the cash is being spent on you know, productive investments or human capital investments. And this study in Kenya is being joined by a number of smaller pilots or RCTs taking place in different places around the world. So from the US to Canada to Finland, there are a number of different pilots of kind of variations on basic income that are taking place. And these are exciting because this will allow us to answer the question or to begin to answer the question of generalizability. So do the results that you see in one place actually hold when you're in a different context? Is there something kind of universal about how this program works? So that, of course, will have, you know, be a very important question from, from a policy perspective. Um, and those studies will help to shed light, you know, comparing rural villages in Kenya to Ottawa, for instance. Now, the persistence of extreme poverty that I mentioned at the beginning is, is one of the motivations behind universal basic income. So we don't yet know if UBI will help to kind of transform the lives of extremely poor households who receive these transfers. And the study in Kenya will help to shed light on, on that question. But until we kind of get there, and in the meantime, there already is evidence on one particular approach that I'd like to share with you for a few minutes, targeted at households who are living on less than $1.90 per day that can sustainably improve livelihoods. So this program is called Graduation, and it was initially designed and implemented by the Bangladeshi NGO BRAC, which many of you may be familiar with. Now, at the heart of, oops, excuse me, at the heart of the graduation approach is the transfer of an asset. So this is a productive asset, think like a cow or a few goats. And this is meant to be the core of a kind of small business, basically, like the core asset that drives a sustainable small business. And then a number of, you know, five other complementary interventions. So technical skills training to figure out how to actually generate returns with that asset that, that you've been transferred. Um, cash support for the first several months to help ensure that before that asset starts generating returns that you don't have an incentive to just go sell the asset so that you can, you know, eat this month. So some limited cash support. Um, but kind of more intangible things like motivation to... Uh, like motivation and, and support, basically, from, from program officers. And then some financial, uh, like kind of financial education, financial inclusion support with savings and some health education. So this is kind of a big push, very comprehensive, really holistic approach. And one question that you might ask if you're thinking about implementation is, this sounds incredibly expensive. And indeed, it is. But researchers looked at kind of a, a rough cost-benefit ratio of this program. So first, I guess, the, the results. They found that access to this graduation program led to significant and positive increases for households, both two years after the initial asset transfer, so when the program ended, and then a year later. So after all program support had ended, households were still enjoying increased consumption, increased income, more assets, as well as uh, reduced levels of you know, stress and basically stress, like psychosocial stress. Um, 
So then they tested the uh, kind of cost-benefit ratio. So in terms of costs, you take the total cost of this entire you know, multifaceted two-year-long program and compare those to benefits. And in this case, measuring benefits pretty conservatively as just an increase in consumption for households that receive the program. And in fact, the kind of cost-to-benefit ratio is positive and significantly so in all but one of the seven contexts where it was evaluated. And I can tell you the story of Honduras later, but basically the assets were chickens, the chickens died difficult to have a so and, and like this actually you know it's both funny but it also points out a good point around like yes this is an effective program around the world but design matters you need to think carefully about what a suitable asset would be chickens as it turns out I was unaware are not particularly durable assets um, so the asset choice really does matter so um, though this is a costly program these cost benefit calculations confirm that the long-run benefits do outweigh the program's upfront costs and in two of these sites, in India and in Bangladesh, researchers have gone back four years later, so a total of seven years after the initial rollout of the program, and see that, in fact, many of those uh, positive impacts of the program on economic and non-economic uh, dimensions persist, and in some cases, even increase. So we don't yet have comparable long-term studies between something like you know, the graduation program and cash to actually test them head to head. But the reason that I share this is because while we're waiting for this re these results on universal basic income, there are other effective programs being run by you know, very high quality organizations around the world that could be you know, effective and cost effective places to think about throwing some philanthropic support. What we do know already, though, as I kind of summarized before, is that cash so far, based on the evidence that exists, is not associated with negative outcomes. It does not reduce work. It does not increase spending on temptation goods. So as uh, Chris Blattman and Paul Niehaus, two of um, j affiliates, wrote in Foreign Affairs recently, one way that we could start to think about cash is as a benchmark. If we think of it as kind of a base case that needs to be beaten um, in order to justify a more actively managed development program. So only if your additional staff and infrastructure and delivery costs actually are justified in terms of increased benefits over cash alone is it worth making that investment, whether it's an NGO program or a government program. So I think this is really an interesting and kind of a thought-provoking approach to take, and there are a number of studies now going on in different places looking at kind of cash benchmarking against other programs and doing these head-to-head -head approaches, and perhaps that's a direction that we'll see more of the development kind of world going. So in addition to thinking of cash as a benchmark, I want to leave like you all, this community of effective altruists, with a few kind of closing thoughts. So first, there already is a lot that we know, and recall that map that I shared of almost 900 RCTs around the world. Not all of those are effective programs or interventions, but there's a lot that we know about effective ways to improve health, education, livelihoods around the world. So basic income is promising, but there's also a lot of other evidence that's out there, and I'd be happy to talk with you about that more. Second, UBI, of course, is exciting and is a potentially disruptive program that does have some evidence to back it up as being you know, potentially an effective approach. And what we may find is that it may well have a place kind of in a portfolio of po policy options for reducing poverty. Third, though, this RCT evidence, particularly from the ongoing study in Kenya, will really be key in resolving much of this debate that I laid out earlier and, and understanding the full impact of UBI on both households that receive it and whole communities over the long term. 
But regardless of what those results say, UBI will not be a panacea, and I think we should be cautious and aware of this. So institutions will still matter. Communities will still need access to public goods like roads, um, like vaccine programs, et cetera, and basic income certainly won't substitute for those things. Nor will UBI be a silver bullet. And so here I would caution us kind of as a community to think back to some of the hype around microcredit before rigorous results showed, you know, it's somewhat positive but not transformative. So, so let's not get too excited and think it's a silver bullet. And then finally... Um, excuse me, scaling up a program like this will entail a number of really critical questions that RCTs are not well suited to answer. So there's tons of political economy questions around how you would actually go about doing this that need to be resolved kind of in other forums than, than in those of rigorous evidence. Um, so with that, thank you very much. And I'm happy to take questions. All right, thank you. So we're going to try as much as possible to run the questions through the app. So again, you've got the Bizabo app, or you've got london.eaglobal.org slash polls. And we have a few that have come in already. One, uh, right off the bat, kind of tied to something that you mentioned briefly, which was the possibility of inflation, especially as this sort mm -hmm. of gets rolled out more broadly. Is there anything known about that today? A little bit, yes, actually. This summer, um, a J-PAL affiliate, Seema Jayachandran, who's at Northwestern, and some of her co-authors released the results of a study that they'd been conducting in Mexico looking at cash transfers versus in-kind transfers. Um, and what they found is that, let me see if I can kind of get this right. So in communities that received in-kind transfers, so these were food, uh, basically a basket of, of food products, they found that prices in those communities dropped significantly because, you know, with, with already having this basket of food goods, it's going to reduce demand for food, which will, you know, bring down prices a bit. In communities where cash was transferred, they found a very small but not statistically significant increase in prices. So their conclusion is the increase in price is basically negligible. Um, and so this kind of helps to shed some light on this question as to whether transferring cash at, at an entire community level would lead to rampant inflation. And their conclusion is not so much. Um, a few kind of caveats, though, to that is that some of these effects depend on, on where the village is. So the price effects, like the, the inflation effects, were larger in communities that were particularly isolated, which makes sense when you think about the fact that they don't have, you know, as robust market linkages and things. So I think the way that, that they conclude is that when policymakers are thinking about the cash versus in-kind, there's not necessarily one single answer, but it really depends on some of, like, the dynamics of the community. And so the policymaker would want to take several of those things into account. Okay. Thank you. Uh, logistical question. How do people receive this money? Mm -hmm. Is it physical cash? Are they getting set up? They have a cell phone already that we can put money into. Mm -hmm. What does that look like in practice? Sure. So um, I can talk about the Give Directly example in particular. So Give Directly is an NGO that was founded um, basically looking at the fact that development programs cost so much money and kind of thinking through this you know, thought experiment. What would happen if we took all that money and we just put it into as low a cost in terms of administration as possible, direct cash transfer? 
Um, and so what they've set up is um, a, like basically a way of sending cash via a mobile money system. So in Kenya, you may be familiar with um, M-Pesa, which is like the largest and most well-developed, you know, it's like a, a Venmo, if, if you use Venmo or PayPal or something, um, kind of person-to-person transfer system um, that has rolled out over the last several years in Kenya and that basically creates a great platform for Give Directly to tap into and to send the money via M-Pesa accounts because something like, I want to say high 90% of, of Kenyans now have access to an M-Pesa account. So there, the infrastructure exists, and this like kind of points back to the question that I raised before. If you're looking at places where, and, and I think M-Pesa works on feature phones as well as smartphones, so you don't necessarily need to have the smartphone, but in places where you know either people don't have access to smartphones um, and there is no M-Pesa that works through a feature phone, then like there are valid infrastructure questions. Um, so I think one approach is to transfer it through mobile money, and, and that does seem to be the direction that a lot of the financial inclusion world is moving, but there's regulatory questions in every country. Um, another option is transfers directly into bank accounts. So for instance, in India, over the past couple of years, the government has rolled out basically an undertaking that's like basically known as like bank accounts for all. So effectively overnight, they opened a bank account in the name of like literally every person in the country. And so that provides an opportunity, if this is moving through government, for transfers to flow through those channels. But in terms of, you know, if you were thinking as an individual, uh, thinking about a way to actually be able to contribute money to, to something like this, Give Directly, and I, I don't represent them, um, but but the way that Give Directly does work now is that they are philanthropically funded because this is like a demonstration effect essentially to to try to run this study. Their total budget, as I had listed on the screen, is something like thirty million dollars to both roll out the transfers and to test their effect. So they are, I think, still a little short on that budget and are looking to raise more money to ensure that the study can actually run for the full 12 years. So as an individual, like kind of scale donor, that's one direction that, that one could go in. Cool. Um, so one questioner observes that if you took Germany, Germany as an example, any sort of basic income that would functionally meet people's needs would exceed the current aggregate tax revenue and basically all government spending. Mm -hmm. So it sort of implies that, and there may be a difference here between different tiers of, of countries in terms of development, that in the rich countries, it sort of is more about rewriting the social contract and less about poverty alleviation. Do you have kind of a vision for what this looks like in first world countries, so to speak, or are you more interested in, in the sort of countries where you showed all the studies? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so from the perspective of where J-PAL affiliates have conducted and are conducting research, uh, that's taking place generally in, in low and middle income countries. Um, but there is, as I mentioned, ongoing research, J-PAL just you know, simply isn't involved in it, in um, in the U.S., Y Combinator is running a study. Um, I think in Ottawa, it's the government. In Finland, it's the government just partnering with researchers. Um, so I think there are places that are thinking through this question of, like, th there's a genuine kind of rationale for considering it, but it's obviously on an entirely different magnitude. $22 a month is not going to get you very far in Berlin. So in the U.S., for instance, um, the, the, base, the kind of amount or size of basic income that's being tested is about $1,000 a month, so $12,000 a year. This is not 
equivalent to reaching the, the poverty line in the U.S. So in this case, it would be kind of a supplement, but not a total substitution for bringing everyone up to, to the poverty line. Um, in terms of thinking through the like fiscal implications of this and how in the world would you finance this? So I guess first, if you reran those numbers, looking at like only a, you know, a half or a third of the poverty line, it, it might come out feasible there. Uh, but that would still be slashing all of your other transfer programs, right? Um, yeah, but there are some calculations that have been done, and all of this is based on like loads of assumptions and projections about the economy. That um, I want to say the Roosevelt Institute in the U.S., which is like a kind of a left-leaning think tank, has done some projections that with the thousand-dollar a month basic income in the U.S., it would actually lead to like net economic growth and would be fiscally possible. But it requires getting rid of like some of the the largest um, social welfare programs that already exist. And um, I think that their calculations are kind of uh, do not involve increasing taxes, but there's kind of other scenarios that you could think about that would increase taxes to finance this, making it more redistributive. So um, a negative income tax is, is kind of another approach to basic income um, that would, yeah, basically tax people at a, above a certain threshold and then provide larger transfers at a smaller threshold. So I guess basically where I'm going with all of this is that I think in higher income countries, the program itself might actually look different and the ways to finance it, um, there could be a, a number of different ways to finance it. But I think these are some of like the big, big questions that RCTs are not going to answer and that require like carefully thinking through different budget scenarios and, and tax scenarios. We're already a minute over time. So just a couple okay. last quick questions. One, um, what is the role of children in these studies? Do they get money too? Does that money go to their parents? Mm -hmm. Tell us what's up with kids. Um, and second, there is a concern that you know somebody gets cancer, they've got huge medical expenses. Today they rely in most countries on the state, but that maybe goes away. So how, mm -hmm. how are we thinking through yep. kind of everybody has this small amount, but for a certain set of people, that's just not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Yep. So uh, in terms of kids, I think this would vary, but in um, all of the studies that are taking place today, I think the amount is per adult in the household. So in Kenya, that's for sure the case. I think in, in the Canada and Finnish experiments, it's, it's looking at adults only. So there are questions around, you know, if you're in a household that has a relatively small number of children, then like the kind of per capita size of that transfer is going to be larger than if you're in a household with you know, many kids. Um, but I think for simplicity's sake, that's how, how these studies are being run right now. Um, and then in thinking about like the health insurance question, so what happens if you have a catastrophic uh, expense or something? I think this is where it's important to recognize that basic income can't replace everything. So some you know, provision of health care is still going to be necessary in eliminating basic income is or, or introducing basic income could not eliminate health care because of precisely those those situations, which would hurt the most vulnerable you know, the most. Um, so again, I think that's like kind of the political economy questions that, that would need to be figured out. But I think in, in most cases where people are talking about, you know, feasibility involving getting rid of some programs, it would be things like in the U.S. getting rid of the earned income tax credit or something. So other things that are purely financial, not so much like the provision of an important other public good like health care. Um, so I, 
I, it would be hard for me to think of a scenario in which you could take healthcare off the table and use, though that's obviously you know a huge proportion of spending in, in every country. Um, I don't think you could take healthcare off the table in order to finance basic income. Um, Perfect. Thank you. For those that want to learn more, where can they follow you online, on social media, and maybe sure. at office hours today? Oh, it's not on my slide. So uh, you can follow us on Twitter at jpal underscore global, I want to say. Oh, my social media uh, colleagues are going to be really upset that I don't know this. Uh, you can also look us up at povertyactionlab.org, and there you can find our Twitter handle and our like Facebook and LinkedIn, whatever, all that information. Um, I have office hours, I want to say, at 3 o'clock, so I'd be happy to talk in more detail about um, any of your questions or things that you're all doing then. Um, and, yeah, that's probably, probably the good places to start. Perfect. Allison Vey, a warm round of applause. Thank you so much. <laughs>